You're listening to the Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org or follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Modern Web Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about web performance. We're going to be talking about images, videos, and profiling, all sorts of awesome things. Uh, I'm your host, Rob Osell. I'm a developer at This.Labs, and today our guest is Doug Sillers. He is a freelance developer evangelist, a Google developer expert, an author, and a digital nomad, which hopefully we'll get to cover a little bit later. Doug, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. This will be fun. Yeah. You know, Doug and I got to meet at the Ordev conference in Sweden, and um, he was doing a panel on uh, performance in the future of web uh, what was going on in the future of web. And we just got into this, the best conversation. And I said, we, we have to do a podcast on this. This is, this is too good to only, to only share between the two of us. So I'm glad that we were able to get you in uh, before the holidays. So I know we're going to talk about performance. We're talking about it kind of in different categories. Um, but one of the things that we talked about that, you know, to discuss on this is, is images and video. And I'm not going to say this is a completely underappreciated part of performance, but I think that people have focused a lot on, for example, optimizing their for loops, you know, which is the correct syntax of a for loop that's, that's been tested over 10,000 operations to be five milliseconds faster, right? But at the same time, their websites are sending down like five megabyte pictures taken directly from their iPhone and unprocessed. <laughs> right. So, I mean, just to start out with, you know, what is... What is it that you talk to people or some of the first things you look at at a site when you know, you're know you looking at images and image performance? When it comes to image, you know, the first thing I do, if someone says, hey, can we look at the performance of a web page, is the go-to tool is webpagetest.org. And if you just well, load it up on your browser, maybe you open up the dev tools. But web page test is this awesome tool. It's free. It's open source. And you can test your web page and see how fast the page loads. And it shows you a waterfall diagram of everything that's downloaded on the page. So the CSS, the JavaScript, the HTML, and of course the images, and hopefully we'll talk about video. Um, but the first thing I look for is, are there a lot of images? And you know, what's the tonnage of those images? How much, how many kilobytes are being downloaded? Um, and a lot of times I'll see things where like the hero image is really nicely optimized, but then they'll have like a thumbnail of the Instagram logo and that's like 600K for some reason. And so there's always something funny that happens. And so I then, once I see the images, I start looking for big images. Like what images are, you know, seem a little out of the ordinary and could possibly be optimized for the performance. Awesome. So, you know, when people have these images, you know, they, they know they're large and, you know, I, I know in a pinch people have, of course, resorted even to using, I mean, I know I've done this, hopefully every developer's done this and I'm not alone, but, you know, opening up like Microsoft Paint to take a really big image and try to get like a smaller resolution version right. of it. Mm -hmm. uh, thank goodness that nowadays there's better tools like Squoosh, like I use the Squoosh app or whatever, right. the web app for doing stuff like that. You know, what are, uh, what are tools that people should be using to, you know, to properly compress images without necessarily losing a ton of quality? Are, are there best in class ones or does, is it just sure. kind of whatever works? Yeah, there are a lot of really great tools and it sort of depends how intense you want to deal with the image, how intensely you want to deal with the images. Um, you know, there, 
They're cloud-based content management systems where you can upload the image, tools like Cloudinary, where you upload the image and with just adding a few parameters to the URL, it's completely optimized for you. So it's, you know, it's pretty hands-off. There's no work to be done. There are tools where it's from the command line where you can you know, write scripts to do the optimization. There's drag and drop tools like Image Optim, which you can just drag it onto the icon on your desktop and like the images, you know, you can go with the default settings or you can even go a little deeper if you're interested, but it will do a lot of that optimization for you. Cool. And so I noticed like when, so when I use the, the, the Squish app, right, like one of the big things that it wants to give you access to is the WebP format for yes. images, which is just incredibly condensed. And you're like amazed at how small it makes your images. But my understanding, at least at the time that I was using this, is that that format isn't necessarily fully supported across all browsers. So my question to you is when you're looking at image formats, you know, should you make sure that you have one format for all browsers for compatibility sake? Or, you know, should people be doing differential serving? You know, how do people deal with formats or what should they be looking at formats either now or next year? So, you know, when it comes to the browsers, JPEG is universal. You know, PNG is universal. You, those will always work. Um, but you start looking at the JPEG format, and I think it's like 28 years old, right? So the compression being used there isn't the most modern. And WebP, I think, just celebrated its 10th birthday. So obviously the compression there is a lot, you know, and it's been improved over time, but it's a much newer algorithms to do the compression. So you do save like 20 to 30% on those images. Um, when you talk about major modern browsers, it's in Firefox, it's in Chrome, and it's in um, Edge. It's not in Safari. Um, they are working on it. There's a bug open and there apparently is work being done on that ticket. Um, but yeah, at this point, there are a few browsers out there. And obviously, I mean, there are a lot of developers out there who still have to worry about the IEs of the world. And obviously, there's never going to be support there as well. Um, generally, what I recommend is the easiest way is to have WebP for the 78% of the web that can use WebP. And if you use the picture tag, you can always fall back to an image for everybody else who doesn't know what the WebP is. So the picture tag, you just list a bunch of sources and the browser picks the first one it knows what to do with. So if you put WebP first, you know, the three browsers that support it, it's gonna take that WebP and then everybody else falls back to the JPEG. If you wanna be really fancy, uh, Safari supports JPEG 2000, which is about the same age as WebP, about the same uh, performance improvements but then you're talking WebP, JPEG 2000, and then JPEG for your IDs and everyone else. So it sort of depends how in depth and how detailed you want to go with it. Um, there are tools out there that will automatically generate the format for you. It'll do the browser detection and generate, you know, you upload a JPEG and the content management system will say, ah, Chrome will send them a WebP. That's actually a really cool tool. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, that, that kind of plays into this idea of these content delivery networks or caching, you know, these types of things. I don't know if these services are the things that you're talking about. I feel like some people feel intimidated by these services. I know certainly I have a, just a perception of them as being way more advanced. Like, oh, sure, if you're the biggest companies doing the biggest websites, then talk about that stuff. But for everybody else, it's not a big deal you know, is that the case or should people that are, you know, if they're a relatively small company, a relatively small site or a relatively small development team, 
should they still be looking into like image services like the ones you've been mentioning or CDNs to host their image resources? Like, should people think they're that intimidating? So they're not that hard. I mean, you're probably, you're uploading your images somewhere anyway, right? <laughs> um, and so like the tool I mentioned earlier, Cloudinary, it does all the CDNs for you. It all goes through Akamai or Fastly. Um, so they take care of all of that sort of stuff. Um, they take care of the hosting. And honestly, for my small projects, I use Cloudinary because they have a really, really generous free tier. And that free tier lets me host all my images for free. Obviously, if my projects get super popular, I might have to start, you know, paying a little bit towards um, hosting those images. Um, I've talked to companies who use tools like this, um, you know, for websites that use lots and lots of images. And what they found is if you're building your own content management system and you're doing all of the image transformation, you know, whatever transformations you need to do for all the images, whether it's responsive images, which we haven't talked about yet, or different formats, you probably have an engineer working on that, if not half time, maybe full time. And it's probably cheaper just to hire a company to do it and have that engineer work on your product. Because in some ways, images is it's a known quantity, right? They it's not really an exciting job to do if you're constantly modifying images. So just like we have services to handle our authentication or handling all these other things, you can hand it off to a company that knows what they're doing. That's really interesting. And you know, one thing that came into mind while you were talking is there's sort of a, a source of images that I don't consider much. I guess I haven't done a ton, a ton with this, but it's with images that come from users, right? There's a lot of websites and a lot of uses from insurance to social media where people are producing their own content. And of course they're taking pictures directly from their iPhones. Right. Um, and then it's getting put up onto the site. So if you're not careful, your users can destroy your own service. So do these services that you're discussing, is this a good solution also for user content? Um, yeah. Should people be looking at this with privacy concerns? I don't know if you've dealt with that part. I know that's not necessarily performance, but that might be where people think. Are, are these good sources for that stuff too? So yeah, so I mean, obviously they, they're, you know, they're content management systems. So they're dealing with all the security and keeping everything safe. So you can write an application that will do those uploads for you. It goes into your secure management system and then you have access to it. So as the owner of the content, they upload it and then you can see it. There was an interesting, at the Chrome Dev Summit this past fall, there was an interesting proposal that people are talking about. It's when, that the browser should do some work when you upload an image. And by doing work when you're uploading an image, it's exactly what you were saying. You take an image with your phone, it's eight megabytes. And it probably doesn't need to be eight megabytes on the server. And so there's actually a proposal out there to have the browser do some of the, you know, transcoding on the phone or on the local device before it gets uploaded. <clears throat> For example, if you take an eight megabyte selfie and you're looking to make that little circle Facebook logo, it probably only needs to be 50K. Save, do it on the phone, it'll take a couple hundred milliseconds, but then you're only uploading 50K. From a performance perspective, it's going to be faster because the little bit of work to optimize it on the phone for a 100K upload versus a five megabyte upload, you're going to say it, the timing is going to be so much faster anyway. So there's actually talk of putting that into the browser, but um, obviously you can write scripts that can do some of that for you as well to, to make the images. When they upload it, make sure it's smaller before it gets uploaded. 
that's really fascinating actually that's it's really smart idea um especially because nowadays with uh with uh, bandwidth caps i mean you'll you'll thank yourself for taking the time to shrink down your images before you try to send them to a server yeah but, totally and it and it goes back to um you know it, like my google photos it'll upload them and i have a cap on how much i can do it full size but it's like unlimited if they crop it a little bit and make it a little bit smaller I don't notice the difference. I'm also not printing it out onto the size of a wall. Um, so it's probably okay. It's the same idea. You're probably not printing it out to the wall. Most of those images don't need to be so large. Um, and so like, even like with some tools, they'll say, do you want to send a full size image or send a smaller version? They want to, instead of having Facebook do that or Google do that, they just want the browser so it works for everybody. It sounds awesome. like it's like code that everybody is writing to implement. And why not just have the browser do it once and just have it be a native API? Yeah, I mean, that sounds, that sounds, that sounds good to me. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you talked about it here, like, you know, you don't need an eight, megapix, eight megabyte uh, 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 image to get, to get a little thumbnail selfie of yourself, you know, for your, right. for your profile picture and things like that. And I think, you know, nowadays tools that view images are so intelligent with uh, setting the zoom correctly that I know I've fallen into this trap of opening up an image and been like, yeah, that image looks really good. You send it to someone and like the, the tool you're using to send it is like, there's no way I'm sending something that large. And so you open it up and you're like, oh, this image is like 8,000 pixels by like 9,000 pixels. Like, right. yeah, it does not need to be that big. Right. Um, you know, and I think a lot of people think that if they just set the, the, the dimensions of their image tag, the image just disappears and all those extra pixels just don't, don't cause any problems. So, right. you know, how should people manage it so that people that look on their phones versus people on their ultra wide curved monitors are mm -hmm. still getting an image that looks appropriate for them? So on the web, this is really easy. You can use responsive images. So you can set for a screen width of X, serve an image that's X plus 50, right? So it's a little bit bigger not ginormous, but just a little bit bigger. Um, so you don't lose any resolution. Um, so you can actually set for really big screens, serve the big version. Obviously, if you have a giant TV and you're on a really slow connection, that's not going to be ideal. Um, but in general, I, I guess we have to make the assumption that if you're on a really large screen, you probably have a pretty fast internet connection. That obviously doesn't always hold. Um, but if you set the responsive images, so you say for someone with a phone that's only 500 pixels wide, don't serve, serve them an image that's 500 pixels wide. And so with the picture tag, it just serves the right size image automatically to those different size screens. And so obviously a 500, 500 by 500 image versus a 2000 by 2000, it's got, you know, what is that like 16X fewer pixels? Um, and so the image is just going to be a lot smaller. It'll download a lot faster. And the, the other part of it is on some of these lower powered phones, um, if you download so many pixels, the phone has to throw away the pixels that it, or the, the computer has to throw away the pixels that it can't show on the screen. And if you have sort of a low powered phone, it can actually take up to a second for the CPU to fire up to like, oh, I have to throw away 15 million pixels to get this onto my screen. And then your phone starts warming up and like all of those things that start sending off triggers to people like something weird's happening with this web page uh, starts to fire up. 
Wow, that's really interesting. I, I didn't even think about that part of it. I knew, I always think of the bandwidth first, but I didn't even necessarily think of the processing power it takes to figure out which of these two pixels should I be throwing out? And you have to do that, you know. Yeah, so imagine you're downloading 15 million pixels on a 3G connection that takes forever. And then the phone has to fire up and be like, oh my gosh, I've got to throw in 98% of this to put it up on the screen. It, it's like, it's almost like a, a double taxation. You get burned for downloading and then you get burned for putting it up on the screen. Interesting. So I've heard this advice before for animated GIF files or yes. GIF files for, for the deviants in our audience that pronounce it that way. Um, but for animated GIFs, you know, I've heard the advice that we should really be shipping video in its place. It's just way more efficient, especially on initial download. Yeah. Um, but th does that mean we have to give up our memes, Doug? Are you, are you no. saying we have to give up our memes? Absolutely not. But, you know, I joke about this, but if you go back to the, the original spec for the animated GIF, like we're talking 1990, right, 30 years ago, it actually says that the GIF has an animated format, but we don't recommend that anybody uses it. <laughs> like, and if the spec is telling you that it's really, and the reason they say that is, if you have 30 frames per second in your GIF, it's literally 30 GIFs, like a flip book, like one of those old flip books that you used to like animate stick figures. Um, so it's not optimized. Video has compression through time and the GIF format does not. And so what you should do is you should actually turn it into an MP4 or whatever movie format you want. MP4 is supported by every browser except for Opera Mini. So that's a pretty good guess. Um, and then just put in the video tag, make it autoplay and make it loop. And it looks exactly like an animated GIF. And if you ever go and view the source for Twitter or for Facebook or for um, any site that uses animated GIFs, even Giphy, the website that serves GIFs, they're serving movies, right? So if the company that's name is Giphy is using movies, it's probably the right way to go. Absolutely. You know, are there any thoughts though with that process of converting animated images to GIFs or videos, excuse me, that people should be mindful of? So there's one case that I'm thinking of here, which is that I went to a website once and they they had in the background of the page, this wasn't even foreground content, this was a background image. It was people like, you know, interacting and, you know, and it kind of was just, just to show a little bit of motion in the background, but it was this extremely heavy video that just, if you opened up the site on your phone, you were just noticing the percentage indicator just, just, just being, you know, falling. Right. And I was like, okay, so sure, but also be careful, right? Like this doesn't, just because it's better to do it as video doesn't mean you can just put the largest things back into your site. I mean, if you, if you think about sizes of videos, like when we're done recording this Zoom, you're gonna have a file probably on your computer that probably has a G after the name, right? <laughs> and obviously you wouldn't put one gigabyte file up on the internet. It's gonna get transcoded and made smaller and compressed um, so that it actually makes sense and it doesn't kill everybody's bandwidth while they're watching it. Um, so I think we need to do the same thing when we have our web pages and just look at the files that we're putting on our web page. Um, you know, it doesn't make sense to have an 80 megabyte background video on your web page. Um, you know, there's limits to how long people actually sit and watch a background video on your web page. Like, I think the recommendation is usually about 30 to 40 seconds max, but I've seen web pages that have like five minute background videos and like how many people load a page and they're like, 
hmm, I'm just going to keep watching the top of this web page. No, you scroll down and you start reading the content. Um, it almost it almost sort of feels like a vanity project. Not that that's a bad thing, but for a background video that's silent, um, that's another thing you should do with the background video is make sure you take out the audio track because like nobody can hear the audio track. Um, make sure that it's silent, but also make sure that it's small because there's no reason to have a you know even a 50 megabyte background video. Um, the other trick that I see a lot with background videos is they appear on the desktop site, but then they don't appear on the mobile version of the site. And that's great, but they're often using CSS. And if you're using the CSS property display none, that means the browser downloads it and it's like, oh, I can't show this. It's not a download none. So if you open that, if you open up the dev tools, you'll probably see like two to five to six megabytes of video downloading to all your mobile customers and they have no way of seeing it. That's a tricky gotcha. You know what, I'll tell people too, that that gotcha can get you with um, uh, accessibility as well. Just because you can't see it on the page doesn't mean a screen reader can't see it. Uh, right. So it works with videos for performance and it also works with accessibility. Be careful how tricky you think you're being with hiding things with CSS. Uh, it doesn't always disappear fully. <laughs> no. Uh, it's it's really you know you'll you'll load a web page and you'll have you know I use Dev Tools and I've got it set for a mobile phone. I'll be like, why is it there's no movie on this page? And you just see the line for that movie downloading, and it's just forever. And it's and and to me, it's kind of you know if if for people who are roaming or on very limited data plans, if your web page is eating up an extra four or five megabytes of video that they can't even consume, um, it's only not only wasteful for your customers, but at some point you're paying for the bandwidth coming that your server is using, whether it means you have to put up a, a larger AWS or cloud system for your hosting, or you're, it's all running through a CDN, you're paying for all of that bandwidth at some degree. And if 50% if of users are on mobile and you're sending each one of them five megabyte videos that they can't see, there's a hidden cost in there somewhere for your company as well. Awesome. So one thing that I'm really confused about with video, just because I you know, honestly, I haven't worked with video a ton on the sites that I've had the opportunity to work on is, you know, do, does the way that the method, the method by which you get the video onto the page matter tremendously versus say a very uh, native element version versus embedding via YouTube or, you know, any of the myriad other video providers versus third party solutions versus rolling your own in house, like, if people are sitting down about to build video websites, like how should they have those conversations on their team as far as trade-offs or things to be aware of? It's a great question. And it's, it's, it, it's sort of complicated, but it's sort of not. But when people ask me like, well, how do you feel about YouTube and Vimeo? And I think like, they're awesome. First step is free, right? Unless, you know, right. It's, it's you, you, you just drag it onto YouTube, it uploads. You've got the experts at YouTube, like doing all the encoding and transformations and building the streams for you. Um, like that's awesome. Uh, one trick with YouTube is if you put that, you know, the embedded link on your page, you've also got about 700K to one megabyte of YouTube, CSS, JavaScript, fonts, uh, all this other stuff that comes down even before the video plays. Um, so, I mean, it's not a horrible amount. I mean, it's, it's the cost you have to pay. 
Um, the other trick with having YouTube content is because it is live on YouTube, if it gets flagged or for some reason YouTube decides that it's not appropriate, um, it might disappear. And then you've, you've got to scramble to get it hosted somewhere else. Um, when it comes to putting up video on your own, I, we sort of talked about compression and things like that. Um, there's formats, there's sizing. Uh, when you use the video tag, uh, you know, and you add a source, there's no media queries. So you can't resize the videos like you can with images. So if you want to have a video, you should probably have a desktop one and a mobile one. Right, and then write some JavaScript to serve the correct div or video tag to your users. Otherwise, you're just serving probably 1080p video to your mobile visitors, and it's just gonna be really big. And then we get into that throwing away pixel thing that we talked about, just huge files. Um, streaming is an option. If you're doing a lot of videos, it, it also sort of depends. Like you're gonna have two videos on your webpage, you're gonna have six, or you're gonna have 10,000. It, it all sort of depends. Streaming is a great option because you just have a video player and then you build several different streams. You've got a really small video, a medium-sized video, a larger video, and the player says, ah, mobile phone, small video. Ah, you know, big screen, big video. It might even say, oh, big screen, but low network, so small video. It may look not so awesome. You know, just like when you watch a video and it's really pixelated at the very beginning because it's showing the small stream at the beginning, um, you may not get the best resolution, but you're getting a video to play. So there's sort of static files like MP4s. Like you can generate an MP4, put it on your web page, you're good to go. Um, if you're doing a lot more videos, you might think about streaming because streaming allows the, the it does a lot of the things automatically like resizing for the screen size, for the network bandwidth. Um, it, it takes away a lot of the pain points. You end up having a bunch of encodings of the same video. So there's obviously trade-offs and all sorts of directions here. Interesting. So I, when we were kind of talking before we did this podcast and we were talking about video topics, when it came, when we were talking about video, you know, you throw out some terminologies that I ended up having to Google things like VMAF and SSIM and PSNR, right? And we can okay. define each one of these terms. We don't have to do them in depth. Um, but you know, these are, near as I can tell, descriptions of the quality of the compression or the state of the video versus some pristine alternative. And my question for you is, you know, both when it comes to video, and I guess this applies to images as well, when you're going to take something that's maybe large and pristine and perfect, <laughs> and then you're going to take it to a format that is going to be good enough, um, maximizing for performance and still quality, how much of that do engineers need to know? How much of that is a dialogue with designers? Like, what is the workflow that people should be using? Because, like, do you need to be an expert on these things to work on a site that does compression? Or, you know, is it just enough to know they exist so you can discuss them? Like, how, how do you start to negotiate this on a team? So it's actually a lot of it is automated. It's a little different for images than it is for videos, because videos are a little more complicated. When it comes to images, there are tools out there that, well, they know that we know the dimensions of the image, we know we can lower the quality, and there are algorithms out there that know what the human eye can detect a difference. And so it'll lower the quality to where the human eye can't tell a difference. So if you're lowering the quality to where you and I think it looks just as good as that original 
raw photo that we took with our $2,000 SLR, like, why not do that? If you can take that 16 meg, you know, megabyte image and make it 300K and it still looks the same to everybody, we should do that. And there are automated tools that will do that for us and it just rolls out. Video is a little more complicated because the tools that do this, the, the VMAF, which is the Netflix quality uh, tool, um, SSIM is another one, it's structural similarity. It's used for images and used for video as well. Um, and then PSNR is uh, basically, it's a signal to noise. What these tools do is use something like FFmpeg, which is an open source free tool. And it does frame by frame, the original video to the one you've compressed. And it, goes, it, it takes some time. So generally you only do sections of your video to test and it'll give you a score at the end. And that score at the end will say, hey, it's of a pretty similar quality, you're good to go. You're at a decent quality, you know, it'll probably work, you know, depending on your, you know, if you're, if you're doing a background video that's silent and a little blurred anyway, you can probably get away with a higher compression than a video that you want to have pristine in at the foreground. Um, and then it'll go all the way down to like, no, this is really, you, you went way too far. This is pretty blurry. Like even the person with the really thick glasses will see that this video is not pristine. Um, and those tools run automatically. They're built into FFmpeg. Um, they're, they're a little complicated to use. I've built a website that will run those tests as well. And we can probably put it in the, the notes here. It's called Stream Clarity. Dot com and you put in your original video, you put in uh, the, the, the compressed one and it'll go frame by frame and give you a score. It's really slow. It's slow whether you do it on a desktop, it's slow whether you do it up on, on an Amazon instance, which this is doing in the background. So you have to wait a little bit, but then you get the score and it gives you your VMF, VMAF score. And then there's tables that will say, this is a good score, this is a medium score, this is a bad score. And so you can play with your compression. I mean, a lot of it, you can use your eyes. Does this video look pretty good? Yeah, I'm pretty happy with that. And then you can test it to make sure that the, that the computers agree with you. Um, that gets you a long way. Um, because when you're doing the compression, you want to make the video small so they download quickly. But if you make them too small, you're going to lose your audience because you went too far. That's awesome. That's great info. Yeah. I mean, that's just, that's definitely a lot of things for people that are maybe just getting into video to keep in mind, uh, to help guide them uh, as they, as they do that to make informed decisions. It is, uh, it is super complicated. And, you know, I think that the biggest things to think about when you have a video on your webpage is open up your webpage in dev tools and set the speed to a slower speed and see how quickly that video starts up on a slower speed. Uh, when we're doing development, we're on super fast connections and it may look, you know, it's that old, but it looks great on my machine sort of mentality. You know, make sure that try it on a 3G connection. No, it'll be slower, but if it takes 40 seconds for the video to start, like look to see how many of your customers, there's a tool called the uh, Chrome UX report and it'll list like how many of your customers are on different speed connections. And if you see a lot of your customers are on slower connections, maybe you think about making that video start up a little faster on, on that sort of speed. Yeah, and that, that's a great segue to the topic that we wanted to cover next, which is just sort of general profiling performance. Uh, obviously mm -hmm. you can use this for your images for your video, um, you know, but I think 
one thing, a message that I, I've heard very loud and very clearly in 2019 is this idea of stop optimizing blindly. Right. Your site may be slow. You might know it's slow, but you probably don't know why it's slow, or you'd be surprised at some of the reasons why it's slow. And so this idea of measure, 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 I think has come across quite clearly in 2019. But interestingly, despite all of that, and despite some really good tools, I think a lot of teams are still like, okay, so what do I measure? <laughs> how, do, right. how do I measure it? What, what, what looks bad? You know, so um, I guess my first question here is, you know, you mentioned web page test as being a good place for people to go. Um, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about kind of what someone should look for um, when they fire that up, because it's very easy to start, you know, and then you get this sort of graph that comes out of the end of it. And you're like, awesome, it's a graph. Is it a good graph? Or is it a bad graph? Yeah. Um, you know, maybe a little bit about how people should interpret the results they get or things that should jump out at them as like those low hanging fruit. Right. That's a great question. And um, it, it's, we're recording this in December. And this is the time where everyone's writing advent calendar posts. And there's a performance advent calendar. And one of the posts last week walks through what every single color in web page test means. Like, because there are these vertical lines and horizontal lines. And I can honestly never keep track of all of them as well. And this, this uh, blog post walks through what every single one is and has arrows identifying them all. And so you can actually go through and figure out what everything means. Um, I think one great thing to look at uh, is also, we talked about images, we talked about videos. Those are large, they're pretty easy to spot. There's usually, a, there's a pie chart that shows how much percentage of your web pages, images, or video. Um, there's also a graph at the bottom of the waterfall that shows you how the CPU is being, whether the CPU is being blocked with your JavaScript. So if there is some JavaScript that's preventing the page from being interactive, that's obviously something that leads to frustration. Um, there's a couple of posts out there talking about rage clicking. And it's for people who are on a web page and they're like, they're trying to interact with the page and it just like, why isn't it working? And so, you know, you cl click once, you click twice, and then all of a sudden it's like, click, click, click. And people are measuring that with their analytics. And so they can actually tell you where the rage clicking is happening on your web page. And that's something that is obviously a problem, right? If your customers are getting frustrated, that's bad. So that's something that we can always look at is, is, uh, is there rage clicking happening on our web page? Are there places where the JavaScript is making interaction with the page impossible? And so that's one place to look. Um, the other thing you can look at is if there are things that you think should be loading sooner on the page, there are all of these ways to preload content. You can tell the browser, this image is more important than other images, load this one first ahead of the others. And so if you can identify the few pieces of content that you really want delivered first, make sure that those are being delivered first. Awesome. Yeah, you know, one piece of advice that I got when I talked to a team that had done some of this is, you know, if you want hard and fast numbers so to do things like a bundle analysis to figure out how big your JavaScript is and what a good budget for JavaScript is, or if you want to know what are good seconds that have been scientifically proven, you know, lead to the most engagement, those numbers exist out there. They might be hard for you to hit. So one thing that I've heard this is really good advice, I'm curious your thoughts on it, is that use this web page test and tools like it to get a baseline where you are. Yep. Then decide, do we like that number? 
You know, what would be a good number for us? If it's at 10 seconds for your first initial load or 30 seconds as some websites are, say, yeah. can we get that to 15? That's yep. still maybe a bad site objectively, but it's twice as fast as the site was before. Then when you're at 15, you've learned a lot. Now say, can we get it to eight, right? And then it's this incremental process. Like your thoughts on that versus saying, no, 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 we have to get all the way from zero to performance. So two seconds load time, under 100K JavaScript, make it happen. Like thoughts on kind of incremental versus some of that stuff, some of that isn't realistic, right? There, I mean, obviously you could want to do some of those things and it may just not be possible. Um, another approach I've seen companies take is, um, say your General Motors, maybe you test Ford and Hyundai and Toyota, right? If Toyota's loading in four seconds and General Motors is loading in 15, your competition is beating you, right? So maybe you should try to get closer to your competition. And there are actually tools out there that will continually, continuously monitor your page and your competition and give you graphs. One of them is called Speed Curve. So you just enter all of those web pages in there. It gives you a lot of performance ideas as well. Like it'll tell you where some of your performance issues are. It will show you changes over time. So maybe you do a release and all of a sudden your page gets slower. Well, now you know exactly where, you know, what happened. You know when it happened, so you can go back and figure out what happened at that moment to cause it to be slower. Um, but you can also test your competition. And if you're Home Depot and you're faster than Lowe's, that means that maybe you're going to get more business than your competition. Um, there are a lot of different ways to skin that and ways to look at that. But that one has been one that I've heard over and over again. Like, if we're slower than our competition and somebody has both tabs open, if they can finish the job with our competitor faster, they're gonna finish the job there faster and they're gonna get the purchase and we're not. Uh, and you know, it might sound impure, like impure motives, but to be honest, if it helps you make the case to the business so that you get the time to do the things that's best for your users anyways, <laughs> Right. Hey man, take, take what you got, right? Like that's right. take advantage of the opportunities you have for sure. Right. And that, that's one that obviously you can sell right up to the marketing or the, the, the other people in your organization that like our competition is beating us. So this is something that we, a lot of people say, how do I justify doing performance fixes on my webpage? That always seems to be a pretty strong one. Yeah, that, no, that's a really great idea because that is a hard one sometimes as people say why, you know, it's not a new feature. So why should you spend time on it? And right. it can be hard when you don't have those metrics internally to track <laughs> right. how to generate that feedback. And that's a pretty easy one. Our competitors are twice as fast as us. Oh, that's not going to stamp. What do you need to make this happen? <laughs> right? Exactly. Um, so, you know, your thoughts on tools like Lighthouse, tools like WebHint, these are tools that I love because not only do they help you find things that are wrong, but they give you links that explain why that thing is wrong and what the right. fix might be. So like, I know these tools don't catch everything. They're not completely customized. Any automated tool like this will have gaps, but how important should these be to teams? And are there, is there a point at which they should know that they need to go beyond these tools? I think those are the great introductory tools and they actually go obviously further than introductory as well. Um, but they will get, you know, if you're getting a high Lighthouse score for performance, you're doing a really good job. Um, and I think Lighthouse just added a, a, a CI module so you can actually test Lighthouse every single time you, um, every time you add, you know, you commit code, you can actually run a Lighthouse test and see if your score went up or down. Um, 
and I think having those tools at the time of a release really helps as well because um, if you're always, if you go and do performance for one month out of the year and then you spend the rest of the 11 months adding features, da 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 da, da you, and you forget about performance, your work's cut out for you that last month out of the year when you're doing performance. But if every single time you do a commit, you realize that whether it's good or bad, you can make that decision. We went down two points on our Lighthouse score, but we added these three features. It's worth it. We can go back and try to recoup those points somewhere else. Um, you know, I think it's always a balance. Awesome. So, you know, we've talked a lot about different types of performance. We talked about the profile, we talked about images, we talked about video. If you wanted to wrap this up and give people their, their, their New Year's performance resolution, you know, what, what should people take as their call to action out of this? What should they look, what should they bring to their team as soon as they get back after the holidays? After the holidays. Um, is there one thing that you think is more important than others? Is it just to have a conversation or, you know, what, what should be their resolution? I think have a, run some tests. If you're not testing, just see what you got. I mean, if you don't, I think a lot of companies know that performance is important, but don't know how to start. So like read the blog post on how to use web page tests and then just go run a couple tests. Test in America, maybe if you've got a big customer base in Europe, test in Europe, see if the page is significantly slower. Maybe you've got a CDN misconfigured and there was a, Facebook has a blog a few years ago where all of their content in Indonesia was being served out of a CDN in South America. Oops, right? All of their content was making an extra 13,000 miles halfway around the world to deliver the content. You know, measure what you got, see what's happening, test at different speeds. Uh, there are companies that actually turn down the corporate Wi-Fi one day a week, you know? So you're forced to use the webpage on a slow connection. Um, so you can sort of feel the pain of your customers who are on a slow connection. Um, I think just sort of be my, just think, I guess be mindful that some of your customers are not on fast connections. There are places in America that have very, very low cellular connection. Um, there are places in Europe and around the world that have very, very limited cellular or wired connections. And, you know, a lot of us are just, we're always on fast connections. We always have 4G on our phones. We've got fiber to the office. We've got fiber to the house. And we forget that I was just on a train in the UK and they're like, you've got 80 megabytes for this trip and we're going to throttle you at one and a half megabits per second. And that was the free Wi-Fi, right? So just remember, there are people who are stuck on these slower connections and they're using your content as well. Yeah. And I mean, my takeaway, what I like to tell people is that, you know, if your site's slow, it's definitely an opportunity to fix, but it doesn't mean that you're a terrible developer. I mean, sometimes the things that you need to do to take a, an an obnoxiously slow site, like one that you'd be like, how do they even, it's because a lot of times people don't realize, they just don't realize that things like turning on compression, things like, you know, the image sizes, right? Some of these things you'd be surprised. And I'm sure you've seen when you sat down with people, you're like, literally, we could make these five changes. It would take you two hours to commit the differences yep. and you'd get 10 seconds off your load time. You wouldn't even realize it. Like, it's not a judgment. You're not a bad developer. Use the tools. They'll tell you some stuff that you're going to be like, that is so easy and obvious. And I'm so glad I did it. Like right. there's, there's a lot of free stuff before you do the really complex stuff. 
you're absolutely right. And it, it's, it's not a sign that you're a bad developer. I've helped companies that, you know, are world renowned that are fortune 500 companies make their web pages faster. So like people just don't know to look for certain things. And if they don't know to look, I mean, so part of it is, uh, you know, maybe that advent calendar read through some of the posts and they'll walk you through, here's some of the things you can do with images. Here's some things you can you right. And then you can start learning. Um, if you really get into it, I believe this is the 12th year of the advent calendar. So you can just read for years and years backwards. Some of obviously some of the stuff from five, six years ago is outdated, but there's still nuggets of information you can gain from that information. Awesome. No, that's really great. And I would also point people to web.dev and similar sites out there that just have tons and tons of content of topics from advanced to very, very basic. Um, so if you're just not sure how to do some of these things, there is a lot of resources out there um, for you to find. So yep. definitely point you in that direction. Yep. And if you're interested in images and video, I've got a lot of posts on my website on how to optimize video and images as well. So feel free to check that out. Okay, great. So that wraps up the performance part. But before we go, I wanted to spend at least a couple minutes highlighting something which is also really cool about Doug, which is this idea that he is a digital nomad. Um, and uh, first up, Doug, can you just explain briefly what that means for you? Like what that means for your life different from a lot of other developers out there? Yeah, so it's really an interesting lifestyle. Um, I was living outside of Seattle and I had the fortunate, you know, I was fortunate enough to have a job that was fully remote. And one night I was sitting with my wife and we were having that discussion like, wow, there's no reason we have to stay in Seattle. You work remote, you could be anywhere in the world. And people talk about that when they're remote. Um, and so we did it. And we went and we, um, I asked permission from work, hey, is it okay if I go travel Europe for a year um, working remotely? And they said, go for it. And so we went, we brought the, all, the whole family and we started traveling and we did a whole year, you know, um, uh, 365 days, 67 Airbnbs. We saw a lot of Europe. Um, it was huge, obviously, for the kids as well. Um, I worked Pacific time zone, which was really nice because we could spend the whole, if we're in London, I could be in London until four o'clock, make my way back to the house, and then I would have to work for the evening. Um, it was a lot of fun because I got to see a whole lot of places around the world I never thought I'd get to see. Um, went back to America, decided we really wanted to be back in Europe and continue that. Um, the company I was working for wasn't open to me doing that, so that's why I've been freelancing for the last couple of years. Um, managed to work enough uh, enough companies that were I could work with to make sure that we could continue to finance uh, the trip, make sure that obviously, you know, we, the income was coming in. Um, but yeah, I'm talking to you from a, I'm in a town on the Lake Geneva right now in Switzerland. Um, we had to delay the start of this talk for about five minutes because of traffic. Uh, I was driving down the side of the mountain. It wasn't snowing, but it was still, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's just really unique. We get to see a lot of places in the world that I'm, I'm very lucky to get to see. Um, the other neat thing about it is I'm doing a lot of developer relations and every couple months I'm in a new town. So if I want to go to a meetup in that new town, it's a whole new audience. It's a whole new group of people that I can share the information that I want to share with. It's uh, every couple of weeks I'm in a new town. I can 
you know, we still uh, meet that community of developers in that region. Um, even if you don't want to speak at those meetups, you can still build off your community and meet people in all of these different places that have similar interests to you that way. So one thing that I found interesting when I talked to you is that you're doing this with children. And as a father myself, I can barely imagine bringing my kid to Europe, let alone bringing him around Europe while I'm, while I'm living. One of the challenges, of course, when you're doing stuff like that is that, especially with children, you have a certain amount of possessions that you just need to kind of have with you at various times, either all the time or just periodically, up to and including things like, you know, holiday decorations and things like that. So I thought that was interesting how you tackled that problem. Do you mind explaining just briefly kind of like how you deal with this permanent thing as you're moving around? Like what things you keep permanent versus what you carry? Yeah, so the first year we did it, it was all suitcases and trains. And so that was very, very limited. Like when we wanted to decorate the Christmas tree, we went to the store and bought lights and the lights didn't come along with us because we just couldn't, you know, that wasn't something we could continue bringing with us. Um, for the last three years, we've had a car with us. And so we can drive. Um, it lets us see a lot of areas that we couldn't see when it was just training, right? If we want to do a day trip out into the country, we all just load up into the car and we go. Um, it also means that the back of our car is full of all of our things. Um, the Christmas ornaments uh, were in storage in Scotland. And then I think when I met you, we had just done the transfer where all of the summer, it was fall, so all the summer camping gear and, you know, beach equipment and all that stuff went into storage and all the Christmas and the Halloween and the everything else came out. It's still very minimalist, right? We have a little bit of all of those things. Um, it's, you know, one thing about kids is they don't need a lot of clothes and after six months, the season's over, they're not gonna be in those clothes again, you know, next time it's summer. So we just go with probably fewer clothes than a lot of people have and we just, you know, we do laundry and we want it anyway. So like, it's just a little bit less. So it's a little bit more of a minimalist lifestyle. Um, but yeah, they all have, uh, you know, a bag with all of their schooling stuff that they have to bring and then they have a duffel bag with all of their clothing. Um, that said, we have a really big van and we fill it up, <laughs> right? It's sort of like it's sort of like when you have a house. When you move into a bigger house, like it just stuff accumulates until it fills up. Sure. You know, we we have everything that we need, uh, and we bring a lot with us. Awesome. So part of the reason I wanted to bring this up is, I mean, I talk to developers a lot now that remote working is becoming more of an accepted practice in the development community. And as soon as people hear about that, they're like well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to travel around the world. Every month, I'm going to be in a different country and I'm going to be working in a different place. So this is a lifestyle that I think people are certainly paying attention to more. Um, and so as somebody that's lived this, has experienced this, what is your advice to somebody of things they should be thinking about or things that they should do before they do that? Or do you just think people should just dive in and figure it out? Like, what is your advice to people that, that look at this and they think, wow, I'd love that lifestyle? I would recommend, like, I, I think if you're really into it, dive in. Um, it might make more sense. Make sure that working remote from your house is still working. Um, so, you know, there are companies that say, we love remote work. And then you're working remotely, and they're like, ah, oh, but can you really come in once a week or something like that? So make sure that that's still working. Make sure that you can still be successful and motivate yourself to do the work. Um, I think a big part of remote working and why companies sometimes have an aversion to it is they just assume that, 
oh, Doug's just going to be watching Netflix all day and he'll log in every now and then and do some work. You know, make sure that you actually have that, you know, discipline to actually do the remote work. Because um, obviously if you're traveling, you're traveling, you're going to need new places that you're going to want to explore and you still have to do the work, right? So, you know, you're throwing a couple of other curveballs into your life that I think it's important to make sure that you can do the things that you're doing normally. Um, then try it, go for a week or two and see if it really is working for you. Um, the other thing I'd recommend is if you are gonna go into this sort of digital nomad lifestyle is realize that don't, don't race, right? If you're doing the digital nomad lifestyle and you're from America, think about people who go on a vacation I'm going to Europe for a week and I'm going to see Venice, Paris, and London. And it's just like, right? It's 110 miles an hour. You're just like focused on doing that. Take your time. If you're traveling as a digital nomad, you can spend two weeks in Paris. And, you know, that means that if things blow up at work, you may miss your reservation to go up to the top of Notre Dame, but you can go the next week, right? Take your time at it and really get to know the culture of the places you're going to. To me, that's what's the most interesting is sort of getting to know, like, you don't get to know your neighbors necessarily, but enough that, you know, you know where the grocery stores are and all of those things. But if you're going too fast, every time you land in a new place, you have to figure out where the grocery store is. You have to figure out where, you know, all the things that come second nature, um, you just have to learn it new every single time you land in a new place. So take it slow enjoy it um, and make sure that you're still getting the things that you need to get done for work done. And, and the last one, uh, last question I have about this because I think people might ask is how have, how have you and how have your, your kids and your family experienced the language barrier? Is that a unique challenge? Is that, have you guys kind of enjoyed that challenge? Are there, you know, how, how do you approach foreign languages in the places that you visit? Uh, so I've got like, hello and thank you and uh, goodbye and things like that. I, I, I can get, I, I wouldn't say I could get by the conversation in German, um, but I can definitely say hello to people as I walk past them. And that, to me, I think that's important. Um, I can say thank, you know, you know, danke and bitte when I leave the grocery store. I think that's a really nice thing to do. Um, for the most part, if you're in a larger city, you can get away. Just a lot of people... There's a privilege to knowing English and then a lot of people in Europe know English. So, you know, they may not comprehend everything you're saying. I tend to speak a lot slower, um, just not in a rude way, but just when I'm talking with my kids, I kind of go a mile a minute. So I slow everything down and we make sure that, you know, just understand, you know, you don't yell, like you, there's sort of that thing where people yell. So they'll understand it if I speak English louder. No, that's not how it works. Um, but we've been pretty lucky that in general, we can get by with English and a little bit of French or Italian. We get by. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like uh, be mindful of the language restrictions of the place that you're going, right? Not every place English is going to be quite so widespread or wide known. So be mindful of it. Um, but you know, we are a bit lucky in that uh, a lot of places, especially in Europe, uh, English is, is a totally acceptable way to get around, even for people that, they each speak their own primary language. English is kind of that common place between them even. 
let right. alone between English speakers. So, you know, we, we're mm -hmm. lucky that way, you're right, but be, be if mindful you happen of to it. Be going to like, if you happen to be going to like a WeWork or a co-working space, the developer communities generally have a fairly good grasp of English because coding is kind of all based on English. So that is an advantage. So if you end up going to a meetup or you end up going to, um, you know, a, a co-working space to, you know, try to get some of your work done, the people there will probably have a pretty good grasp on the English language. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for that introduction kind of to, to that lifestyle. I just, I find it so fascinating and it's just so great to hear your story. Um, and, and people should definitely reach out to you if they have additional questions about totally that lifestyle or about how, how things work for you or if they're interested in it. Um, feel free to reach out. Um, it may take a while. It's, it's, it's a lot of work, right? I mean, if you think about it, I mean, I guess when you're at home, there's always like the light switch that needs to be replaced or the toilet that needs to jiggle every, right? There's always stuff you need to do. There is a lot of logistics that you end up taking on when you end up being a full-time traveler. And so just get ready to um, roll with it. Like your Airbnb might not be nice. You might miss a train. Like that's just part of the way the, the world goes. And just roll with it and enjoy it and take it with a smile. I think that's the biggest point is that there are times where it's really hard. Um, just like we really like pizza, but after about the 10th day straight of eating pizza, you're like, I could go, I just don't ever eat pizza again. There'll be moments where you're like, I just want to go home and lie in my bed. Yeah, that's so great. That's no, you'll power advice. through it or you'll go home and sleep in your bed. And either way is great. Awesome. Well, thank you, uh, Doug. And thank you, everybody else. That is, that's it for today. Thank you for uh, listening to the Modern Web Podcast. Thank you to our guest, Doug. As we say here, the conversation does not need to stop here. So if you have any questions about the stuff that we talked about today, about performance, images, video, profiling, or being a digital nomad, uh, please feel free to reach out to us, or Doug in particular. Uh, you can find Doug on Twitter at Doug Sillars. So that's D-O-U-G-S-I-L-L-A-R-S. Uh, you can find me online at Robocell, that's R-O-B-O-C-E-L-L. -L. Uh, and you can find us online at the moderndotweb.com or on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. So thanks again. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. This podcast is sponsored by Syncfusion. Essential JS2 is a web UI component suite of Syncfusion, that offers more than 65 plus modern UI components on all major frameworks, such as Angular, React, Vue, JavaScript, ASP.NET Core, ASP.NET MVC, and Blazor. You can start to build and deliver the high-performing and responsive web apps faster with great user experience. Come check us out at www.syncfusion.com slash modern web. Oh,